an extra $100 on your rate bill for everyone every year for the five-year period where their funds were built up. And $100 is probably for most people equivalent to about 25 coffees. Welcome to the Freewheeling Podcast, the place for free-thinking ideas in transport and mobility. My name is Thomas Abelman, and each week I'll bring you fresh voices, new ideas, and unconventional thinking. So let's get started now with this week's edition of the Freewheeling Podcast. My guest today is a true expert in public transport. She's been inaugural chair in public transport at the University of Sydney since 2008, and is also Professor Emerita at the Institute of Transport and Logistics Studies. She's been researching public transport since 10 years before I was born. And I say that not to make myself sound young, but to emphasize the extraordinary depth of her knowledge. Corinne Mully, welcome to the Freewheeling Podcast. Thank you. You make me feel very old though. <laughs> no, not, not at all. Just you, you've been researching transport for, I, I am right about this, nearly 50 years, aren't I? I have more or less, if you take into account undergraduate, postgraduate research, is that right? 50 years? Oh, of course. Yes. If you take all those into account, yes, that's right. So I mean, I'm a transport obsessive, as you know, and I imagine you get asked the same question that I often do, which is, why on earth transport for 50 years? Well, you pre-warned me that you were going to ask this, so I've actually thought about it. And I guess it's easier to answer why transport than why public transport. Um, transport was really a cop-out as an eco economist because I've always found microeconomics easier than macroeconomics. And one of the fundamental assumptions of neoclassical economics is that transport costs don't exist. Well, that's patently rather stupid, but it also makes theory much easier to bend when you start introducing transport costs. So that's why transport. Why public transport? I suppose I've always been influenced by wanting to provide evidence for policy. And I've been extraordinarily lucky by being an academic where I've been free to follow my nose with no one telling me what to do. In fact, I'm probably a bit of a rebel. I don't like doing what people tell me to do. So just as an example, I suppose I was in my 20s when the Jubilee Line was built and I saw all the enormous gains that individuals got on their house prices from a project which was paid for out of the public purse. And that seemed to me so terribly unfair that I wanted to investigate value uplift a bit more. And that's carried on almost over the last 30 years or so, trying to refine that and developing policy where those individual gains, which I don't think are fair, can be extracted to pay for services which will benefit everyone. So that's one stream. And I suppose the other is that I had really good role models and mentors. I don't know whether you've come across as a transport nerd, um, the book by Herbert Morrison on socialization, socialism and transport that was written in the 1930s that talked about when transport was making profits, how those profits should go back to the people because they were the people that generated them. So that was a book that really influenced me. Of course, transport um, doesn't make profits anymore, but that's a different issue. And then you talked about my undergraduate and postgraduate. I spent quite a lot of time at the LSE where I had mentors that had worked with Barbara Castle, like Chris Foster, um, Stephen Glaister, 
who did a lot of work on London transport. Theo Barker, who was a historian, who taught me that history has to be given some ear, because if you don't learn from history, you make the same mistakes over and over again. And Alan Day, whose politics were quite different from mine, but actually taught me a lot about transport economics. So all those, I suppose, led up to the enormous opportunity that moving to Sydney gave me, which was a post that was funded by the state government. And both the state and the federal government gave tremendous support and interest in what I was doing to provide them with evidence. And I had a lot of support also from the director of the Institute, um, David Henshaw. So that's why public transport, it's a bit of a long explanation, but I hope it makes some sense. So I'm going to ask you an impossible question. Uh, so I forgive me in advance for even contemplating it, but I'm going to do it anyway, which is try to wrap up a lifetime's research into a single set of conclusions. I think public transport provides the community with an essential form of infrastructure to get from A to B so that they can be included in society. And so my work has been based on how to further that, both for disadvantaged members of society, but also to make it more efficient so it goes further. And one of the things that you've been sort of sitting on the outside looking in for a very long time, and there's constant news. And you know, at the moment, we're in the UK obsessing about the National Bus Strategy and the Williams Review and this and that and the other. And over that 50-year horizon, how much actually do all of these things that we obsess about on a daily basis matter? And do we, do we lose some of the bigger stories um, by focusing on the day-to-day? I don't think what you're talking about is focusing on the day-to-day. I think things like all these reports that we've seen have been ways of trying to make what we do better. And I think some of them certainly have. For example, if you look at the cost-benefit analysis, which came in, I suppose, in the 60s for transport, and the first report was on the Victoria Line that showed how the Victoria Line brought benefits, even when it wasn't actually making a profit. All these things, I think, are important to get our understanding. The work that I'm doing on value uplift is showing how it's not just one person or everyone making the same amount of uplift. That depends on where you live, what sort of house you have. And so the policy implications are clear. If you stick a constant tax on everyone, you're going to cause further inequity. So I think these things are important to understand on the day-to-day basis so we don't make mistakes or so we don't make too many mistakes. So talk to me a bit about value uplift. Uh, I probably, my parents are probably some of the people you had in mind when the Jubilee line opened because in the 80s, we lived just around the road from Swiss Cottage Station. So started to to benefit from that a little bit, I imagine. So uh, I don't think they would have even thought about some of the questions you you described there. Talk to me a bit about value uplift. Okay, well, value uplift, the the theory says, and the theory seems to work, that um, the land on which property is built, or land in general, its value reflects the accessibility. So if you put a new transport infrastructure in, various bits of land close to the stations become more accessible, and so their value goes up. 
and that happens the world over. Um, it seems to me completely inequitable that the value goes up for people that live around the stations, but they don't give anything back in terms of that increased value. And one of the things which governments around the world are struggling with at the moment is finding money to build new infrastructure. And this seems to me an ideal way of liberating some money towards it. Does that make sense? Absolutely. That makes so much sense, doesn't it? And we've all bought or rented a house. We all know that one of the things we look for is how near to transport is it? So indeed, you know, if you look at one of the most popular TV programmes about properties called Location, Location, Location. So why doesn't this get used as a form of funding all around the world? I can't think of any examples of where this has happened. Why is that? I think it's quite hard to do in practice. It's a bit like road pricing. People see it as a tax. Um, it is done in some sort of general ways by having areas which are ring-fenced and raised money through rates and so on. But I think it's also difficult on a personal level. You know, how do you justify, people say, putting a tax on the old lady who lives in the house that she's lived in since she was a, a child when it wasn't her choice to put the new infrastructure within her, her reach and therefore increase the price. I don't actually think any of these things are insuperable. It just requires good evidence and good policy to implement it. So let's look in London, for example, where... We're building HS2 to Euston Station. It's always been absolutely agreed that you can't build HS2 without Crossrail 2 because Euston Station will fill up. But there's absolutely no prospect of Crossrail 2 being built because in the meantime, there's been a pandemic and there's no money anymore. So let's imagine we want to find an alternative way of funding this enormous new line across London that everyone agrees is essential and is never going to be built. Um, it's going to link Wimbledon with uh, the Lee Valley. The Lee Valley, quite deprived, lots of housing regeneration sites, quite a lot of industrial land that could be repurposed. Um, Wimbledon, very affluent, uh, existing uh, commuter suburb. So how could some of the principles you're describing here be uh, deployed to enable Crossrail 2 to move from being um, impossible to practical? Well, I think it depends. I mean, there, there are, there are um, easy ways and not so easy ways. Um, Crossrail 1 actually was one of the systems which has used land value uplift as part of its funding. Um, the Gold Coast light rail in Australia, in Queensland, put a, a fixed amount of um, extra tariff on everyone's rates who were going to benefit from the, the system. I don't think that's equitable, but of course it does depend on the level that it is. If everyone was to pay an extra £100 per year, would that matter too much if it wasn't as progressive as we'd like to like it to be? You know, it's when you're talking about imposing costs of thousands per person that it starts to be more difficult. And of course, you could graduate the um, extra tax, if you like, by putting a higher tax on those who can afford it in Wimbledon versus those that could can't afford it so well at the other end. But I've concentrated on looking at value uplift of um, housing. Of course, there's also the value uplift that comes to entrepreneurs who build, and that, that is much easier to extract 
and should be extracted, if not through the planning system, through some form of business rights. And has that, is there other places on earth where it has been tried? And what were the results if, there, if it has? I don't think there's anywhere that's actually applied it per household on the basis of a progressive tax. There have been places where there's been a, a household tax. I mean, like as in um, Queensland, an extra $100 on your rate bill for everyone every year for the five-year period where their funds were built up. And $100 is probably for most people equivalent to about 25 coffees to give you an idea of, of, of amount. But it's the number of people that pay it that make the difference. And Crossrail, I think, um, actually did it through the business rates, had a, a specific business rates to raise money that was used to pay for it. Um, and I think generally businesses are tapped through the planning system, if nothing else. It's the individual residences that aren't. And that has the same problem as road pricing. People see it as a tax and it's politically unpopular. And road pricing is something that, as you'll know from, from the freewheeling blog, is something I think is essential. Uh, and it frustrates me the way people see road pricing as a tax um, or, or, or see it as unpopular, because I think an awful lot of the people who drive most and fear it most are the people who'd actually benefit from it because of the idea that you'd apply it to the journeys that are called the cause of congestion, which are frequently shorter journeys in areas with alternatives. And it's those long rural journeys where people don't have alternatives and are currently having to pay fuel duty. Yes, I think, uh, but I think the tide is turning on that because it's always been the case that the, an argument against road pricing has been that if you charge everyone, rural residents will pay disproportionately too much because they're not in congested areas. Um, the work we did in Sydney was based on the fact, on the idea that um, you won't get the general car driving population, and Australians are very keen on their cars, to support you unless you do it through their pocket. So what we looked at is how you could change the emphasis between the fixed costs of owning a car, which here would be our road fund tax, and the variable costs of running a car, which is the fuel tax, how you could change that balance to leave car drivers unaffected overall and yet improve congestion. And our idea was that you remove effectively the road fund tax and you put a, a relatively small um, per kilometre charge on peak hour kilometres only. And our analysis suggested that if you do that, you remove enough from the peak hour travelling to make speeds comparable to the sorts of speeds you see in school holidays. And the end of the day, the it was set so the... Um, the individual driver who did an average number of miles would be unaffected. Of course, if you did more than that, you'd pay more. But if you did less than that, you'd also pay less. And I suppose what resonated with me over your blog was the pointer to what's happening with electric vehicles, that actually the road fund tax, which was originally in the 1920s set up to build roads and has been appropriated ever since for all sorts of other, perhaps more dubious road-based activities. 
um, is quite fast not keeping up with inflation. And the fuel tax revenues are disappearing as people move to more hybrid and more electric vehicles. So, you know, this is a, people are sort of work, um, voting with their feet in a sense to go over to electric vehicles. We need to find some way of making good that revenue. And I think your idea of using that revenue to pay for infrastructure, well, pay, not necessarily pay for infrastructure, but pay for revenue deficits on public transport are a very good idea. If you go back to when um, Ken Livingstone was mayor of London and introduced the congestion charge, he said it was really important that you had good public transport to act as an alternative to people using their car and that you have to put that in place first. So I think the time is ripe and that we should, as you say, not try and um, reactivate, reactivate old battles, but start a, afresh with new ones and point out that people pay fares to use public transport. Why shouldn't they pay for using the road? And indeed, although um, I probably would generate some hate mail for it as well. Why, why shouldn't cyclists pay something towards the provision of infrastructure for their use? Absolutely. And you know, one of the things that I remember um, is when Ken Livingston introduced the congestion charge and there was this sense that the world was going to end. You know, people are being asked to pay for car journeys. And of course, the world didn't end and people adjusted their behaviour and things carried on. Uh, there's a perception that it will be politically impossible. But the congestion charge was a far blunter instrument just because of the technology at the time than a road pricing solution nowadays would need to be. And it was done, and the politician who introduced it was then re-elected re in the next election. Um, it, it, didn't, it didn't cause this mass alienation that people seem to perceive. And it's one of those interesting policy areas that just seems to have become politically toxic, not because of any particular evidence that it's more hated than other policy areas, just because it's there's, there's a widespread assumption that it is. I don't quite know where that came from. No, and I think one of the issues, um, actually, the congestion charge is a really good example of how one needs to be very careful with policy because congestion in London I think now is well beyond what it was before the congestion charge and it's a, if one was being cynical you could say that um, Ken Livingstone was hijacked by the environmental lobby to exclude from the charge those environmentally friendly cars um, you need to be careful that you don't mix your policies. If what you're interested in is in congestion, then environmentally friendly cars cause congestion just as much as polluting cars. And so you shouldn't exclude them on that basis. And I think what happened in London to a certain extent is that you didn't see the change straight away because buying cars is a, or durables is a long-term decision. And it was after a few years that people, when they came to replace their cars, looked to see whether they should buy a car that was going to exclude them from the congestion charge. So I think, you know, we need to be careful with policies, particularly with things like road pricing, that we try to get it right and don't get hoodwinked by 
various factions that try and push you off the path that you started on. Absolutely. I mean, I think there's two problems with cars and they're totally different problems. One problem with cars is that they generate vast amounts of carbon dioxide and greenhouse gases, and that is being addressed through a move to electric, etc, etc. The other problem with cars is that they're an incredibly space inefficient form of transport, which matters very little in the Scottish Highlands and rural Wales and other areas where there's plenty of road space compared to a car, but it's an extremely serious issue in urban areas, cities and on commuter corridors where there just isn't enough space for people to drive in. And this move to exempt cars from all forms of congestion management, road pricing, whatever it is, is really alarming because we'll just end up with the least efficient form of transport being incentivized and people are seeing them as green and forgetting the other consequences. Well, of course, and the other consequence, which no one talks about, but it is a very emotive subject, is parking. In most cars spend, is it 94 or 97% of their lives parked outside the house of their owners? Think about the additional street space we would have if we didn't have parking in that way. No, it's absolutely true. And I I don't drive. Uh, and it, it, it frustrates me um, that my neighbours can pay an extraordinarily small sum of money every year to rent a very large amount of street space outside the house. Well, I could I could do other things with that space if I was able to access it. But, uh, but of course, I can't because I don't have a car. Um, and indeed, I can't actually. Um, I can't pay an equivalent sum of money to park a bike out there. Uh, it, it, there's just an assumption that we should subsidise a huge proportion of urban real estate for the sake of parking cars. I absolutely agree. But then, you know, you need to take it one stage further. And I mean, people think of this as a, as a somewhat trivial way of uh, trivial research activity. But in Sydney, when we first moved there, I bought a car as one of the first things I did for two reasons. One is that we had dogs and they were put into quarantine that was 40 miles away and the nearest rail station was three miles with no public transport. And the second reason was that we had a, a boat that was on the harbour and because of public transport banning dogs from travelling, we had no way of getting the dogs to the boat. So this car was like our, our tender to get from the house to the boat. And with, together with a colleague, we've looked at policies for... Um, why dogs are banned from public transport. And there's no good reason at all. It's partly cultural, but, um, you know, I suppose what Jenny, Jen would say, who is my co-author, is that life is actually full of messy journeys. You know, <laughs> women take children to school and then they do shopping and then they go to work but men also have messy journeys taking things to the post office perhaps on their way to work that need to be posted and the less public transport can deal with these messy trips it's not going to capture people and get them to live without a car so messy journeys leads us nicely into the topic of of mass mobility as a service a topic that you've you've also looked at quite extensively um, have you discovered what it is yet well, we try to be um, world leaders in telling other people what it is. Um, so I think for me, mass has to have a number of um, elements. It's got to be providing intermodal trips. It's got to be putting the, the, the um, traveller at the centre of the, of the story so that they get 
the opportunity to have information, changes of information if it changes, but they must also be able to pay for their journey and for the journey to be seamless between all its different elements. So a lot of people call mass um, a journey planner. Um, or oh, sorry, it's the other way around, isn't it? A lot of people call a journey planner mass. I don't think there are any true mass schemes yet. So I suppose if you'd asked me this question two years ago, I might have been quite optimistic. I'm not so optimistic now. I'm actually quite sceptical as to whether or not following the pandemic, um, mass will ever take off. I think, in a sense, the pandemic could offer an opportunity. It's certainly shown in, in New South Wales, in Sydney, that um, on-demand trips have become much more popular. I suppose because in a pandemic environment, um, an on-demand trip doesn't put you into quite such close proximity with so many people. If that could be introduced into a mass ecosystem, it may well be that we, we finally have got the um, origin to destination transport sorted. But I think there are still lots of problems with the business models which are not clear yet. And, you know, transport operators aren't known for um, cooperating. I mean, for example, two operators, I, th I think it was Uber and one of the operators in Sydney were going to provide an on-demand service offer to the state government, but it fell apart because neither side was prepared to give up their brand. So there are all sorts of issues that I think will stop mobility as a service, which I think is such a great opportunity for public transport to thrive at its centre to come about. One of my worries about mass is, as you say, the business models are fiendishly hard to get right and that it's turned into this kind of Godot style thing that we're all waiting for mass. And as a result, actually, things that otherwise might happen get sort of pushed to the side because there's the sense that mass is going to come and save us all. And I, I, I increasingly worry that it won't come and save us all because it is too difficult. But there's a kind of almost an excuse sometimes for operators not to, to focus on the things that can be done because there's this sense there's this thing coming that may or may not ever arrive. Do you know what I mean? Yes, and I think there's, a, there's all sorts of problems too. I mean, certainly this is Australian experience, that um, operators are really comfortable with running services which they get paid per kilometre by the government. They don't like small vehicles because they don't understand them. They don't like on-demand because they're used to going from A to B along a route. Um, you need a mixture of operators, all of which who understand that each other have some comparative advantage in the area that they're looking at. Um, I don't. I think one of the things that we've been pushing quite hard as a result of our interest in mass is maybe the contracting regime needs to change. Maybe a first step towards mass would be instead of offering a bus operator a bus contract, you offer a transport offerer, operator a mobility contract and you require them to offer so many million journeys between various different destinations. And you say to them, you know, do it how you like. 
So you would start hopefully getting operators to join together to provide, you know, the niche services with small vehicles because that is more efficient for them and they get more benefit from the subsidy that they've got by so doing. So by pushing operators into into these unfamiliar grounds to provide for what Jen would call those messy journeys. So you start contracting around the outcomes you want as opposed to the inputs you're buying. That's right. And I mean, it, it goes all the way. I, I suppose I've been having arguments like this in Sydney for quite a long time. It seems to me crazy to um, concentrate on penalising operators, for example, on running to time because it's a metric which is so stupid. And a colleague of mine who ran a bus company um, was so frustrated because they had a service which came into the CBD, turned around and started there to go back. And because of the congestion on Sydney Harbour Bridge, this return journey was impossible to keep to time. So my suggestion to him was, and it was actually a bit flippant, turn it into a circular service that it won't have a starting point. And I didn't, I didn't <laughs> expect him to do it, but he did. And of course, the state government couldn't do anything about penalising him. Well, that just goes to show you how input measures are a, diff are a stupid way to go. What you need to do is to ask people how satisfied they are with their transport service and penalise people for transport services which their customers don't find satisfying. And as much as one has complications and grumbles about deregulation in the UK, the one thing which it has done is it's made operators um, look to provide what their customers want. So long before I went to Australia, one of the bus companies in the northeast said one of their surveys had shown that passengers were really conscious of the dirt that hangs around windows of buses because that's where they put their elbows and they get dirty. They didn't mind so much if the floor had a bit of dirt on it because that was where their shoes went. That company was interested in their bottom line. And so, of course, they go to clean the vehicles in the way that they know their customers want. If you look at output measures, then you get operators keen to find out what it is that their customers want and provide it. Sorry, that was a bit of a rant. No, it's absolutely right. And I entirely agree. And I, I used to work at Chiltern Railways, which I think had quite an intelligent regulatory regime where we were incentivized to care about things like the National Passenger Survey, which is quite unusual. Most train operators didn't. And it was something that Chiltern Railways had specifically put into its franchise bid to create the right incentives for Chiltern Railways to succeed. And I thought that was, you know, that was had been a very intelligent way of doing that. Um we're relatively short of time, but um, two final questions I'd like to, to, to talk about, if, if we may. Um, one is the obvious question that one has to ask everyone at the moment, which is, what do you think the the consequence of COVID will be? Um, and I'll follow up from that with, what do you hope happens next? Well, I think the response to COVID is, is twofold. It's what I would like to see and what I fear might happen. What I'd like to see and it's happening more in countries like Australia, which don't have a 
infection problem like we have in the UK? Is public transport returning more to normal and to provide for those trips that people need to become included in society or to remain included in society? What I fear in the UK is that um, services will be um, will start following that destructive circle of no passengers leading to less services, leading to less services in turn. One of the things I always said to my students is the danger of cutting the last night trip where you only have one or two passengers is that you actually lose those passengers on their outward journey as well. So this destructive cycle of lower patronage cutting services is something which I fear will happen. Absolutely. Well, let's watch this space um, and and see what see what emerges. It's a fascinating time. Are you after the length of time you've been you've been looking at this industry, are you still fascinated by it? I'm afraid, unfortunately, I'm still doing research, even though I've retired. So I think that answers your question. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, we look forward to seeing what comes next. Thank you very much indeed for joining me on the Freewheeling Podcast. You're very welcome. Thank you for inviting me. Well, that concludes the Freewheeling Podcast for this week. Many thanks to my guest, Corinne Mully, and thank you to you for listening. And please join me again next week for the Freewheeling Podcast. Goodbye.